Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. Over the past several months, the NATO alliance has been working hard to respond to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, So far, NATO has maintained a strong and united front, demonstrating its enduring value in an era of heightened instability in Europe. Uh, The war has also brought significant change to NATO, demonstrated by the recent watershed decisions by Finland and Sweden to apply for membership in the alliance. As we look forward to the key NATO summit in Madrid at the end of June, we're really pleased to first welcome Ambassador Julie Smith, who will give us a sneak peek into the Madrid summit. And after we say goodbye to the ambassador, we'll welcome Steve Erlinger and David Singer from the New York Times for a follow-on discussion on NATO and European security in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So first, I'm really happy to welcome Ambassador Smith. Julie, welcome back to Brussels Sprouts. Thank you. It's good to be back with the Brussels Sprouts gang. I think thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it has to be said for those of you who don't know, um, Julie, before she became ambassador, was in addition to many of her other professional endeavors here at CNES. And it was Julie and Jim who created Brussels Sprouts. So it's an extra treat to have you back. I feel like I should have my Brussels Sprouts mug sitting here in Brussels. I know, likewise. Um, Okay, so lots to get into, and I know we just have you for a short time, but I think the key focus is really the Madrid summit. Um, Obviously, many of us have been looking forward to the summit for some time. Um, It's obviously taken on uh, added significance since February 24th, um, and yet I feel like there hasn't been a whole lot um, out there in the public domain on what we can expect for the summit. So I'm hoping, and I want to just start by turning it over to you, Um, To the extent you can um, give us a little bit of a sneak peek into the summit um, and what what we should expect. Well, so there's uh, kind of two stories to the Madrid summit. There's the plans that we had in place before February 24th and the plans that we've since created uh, in the wake of Russia's war in Ukraine. So before Russia went into Ukraine, obviously the crown jewel of the Madrid summit was going to be the strategic concept. This is the key strategic document that the alliance relies on to lead it in identifying its core purpose and its its core values and its core tasks. This document's written roughly once every 10 years. The last time NATO wrote a strategic concept was in 2010. So the alliance set itself on a course to create a new strategic concept in 2022, and work has been underway to try and negotiate that. It's a lengthy document that will cover a whole range of topics. Obviously, folks will be very eager to see what the alliance is going to say about Russia. I think I can can't say with any certainty, but I think it's safe to say that the language in 2022 is going to look significantly different than the language in 2010. There are going to be some new additions to the strategic concept on top of it. We're going to see most likely a mention of China for the first time in the strategic concept, which will be an important new development in NATO's history. And then you're going to see a heavy emphasis on the future. You're going to see allies putting um, a strong point on new challenges 
challenges, things that they've been grappling with only in recent years, months, or in some cases, weeks. You'll see mention of things like cybersecurity. There's going to be an emphasis on emerging and disruptive technologies. There'll be a section on climate change, and we can get into some of the other details down the road. But that's point one, the crown jewel of the strategic concept. Now, in the wake of Russia's war in Ukraine, there's some things that we've added to the list for Madrid. So we're going to have to talk about force posture. NATO moved uh, thousands of troops onto its eastern flank in the wake of Russia's invasion. But now the question that's on the table is what more should NATO do? What kind of medium and longer term outlook should the alliance have? And so we're going to have something to say about that uh, in Madrid. And lastly, uh, I would note, as everyone knows, Sweden and Finland walked through the front door of the NATO alliance a couple weeks ago and formally announced that they want to become members of this alliance. Uh, the hope is that perhaps we'll have the good fortune of having those two countries sit at the table in Madrid as invitees. That may or may not happen. We don't know exactly about the timing. There's a whole process that has to follow after a country walks in the door and submits the formal request for, for membership. You've heard that Turkey has some concerns. We're dealing with those concerns. We're discussing them at NATO HQ. So I'm confident that Sweden and Finland will join the alliance, I hope, in the weeks and months, not years. Um, I know they will join the alliance at some point, but we'll see whether or not they'll be in Madrid as partners. They're strong partners to the alliance, so they'll be there one way or another, or if they're sitting at the table as invitees. Wonderful. So, Jim, are you in? Can we hear you now? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Oh, thank God. Um, I was going to call the Geek Squad to come over and rewire it, but uh, <laughs> that would have taken a long time. Uh, well, hi, Julie. It's great to, it's great to see you. Um, so a question I have is what unique U.S. fingerprints are going to be on the strategic concept or at Madrid? You know, the, the alliance, you talked uh, and gave us some great information on what the alliance is going to do and the alliance approach. But what's uniquely U.S.? Uh, you know, force posture, certainly everyone is wondering about deployable uh, versus already deployed uh, forces, you know, rotational forces. Uh, and uh, that kind of thing. So what's, what's going to be a unique U.S. fingerprint on the Madrid summit? Well, there will probably be a couple different things that you can point to. And again, we're in the middle, as, as you'll remember, uh, late night negotiations are uh, happening each and every day uh, and into the night here at NATO HQ. So I can't say with any certainty exactly what certain sections are going to look like. But I think uh, I would start with the issue of China, the Indo-Pacific, the China-Russia relationship. This is something that the U.S. has been leading on. It's, it's an issue where the United States, but also we've worked with other allies who feel the same way, that it's time for the alliance to acknowledge that China is now a challenge for the alliance because of its activities in and around the Euro-Atlantic area, the investments it's made in its own military, uh, its efforts to modernize its military, but also some of the tools it's using in Europe's neighborhood. We are seeing a greater reliance on things like some of the hybrid tactics, disinformation, economic coercion in some cases, some of the investments that China is making in critical infrastructure, uh, again, in and around European territory or in the Euro-Atlantic space. So for that reason, 
reason the United States, working with some other countries, we've pushed to have NATO dig into the subject of China in the Indo-Pacific. And in fact, one thing that I didn't mention is for the first time in NATO's history, we're going to have four Asia-Pacific partners present at the summit. So Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan will all send their leaders to the summit. That's never happened before. And I think what that does is it sends a strong signal about NATO partnerships, but also the importance for NATO allies to work with other like-minded democracies around the world to share lessons learned, to work on things like cybersecurity or emerging and disruptive technology. And so it's going to be uh, a key part of what we do. Um, let me let me do a follow up, if I could. How about U.S. force posture? I know there's a debate in the Pentagon about what that might look like. Can you give us any any hints on uh, what uh, the future for the U.S. forces in Europe might look like? Can I really quickly, Julie, before you answer, I'm just going to piggyback on it because I think one of the things that folks have been talking about is, you know, I think Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine is a pretty clear violation of the NATO-Russia Founding Act. And there's been some increasingly vocal calls um, that it's time to suspend that, which would kind of free up the United States to have a more permanent presence. So I don't know if you, if that's something that's being discussed around NATO headquarters and whether it is time to take that pretty clear step and send that clear signal to Moscow that, you know, time out, this, this violates that principle. And so we're going to move forward um, in some decisive ways to counter this threat. So there have been a number, to start with your question, uh, Andrea, there, there have been a number of debates across the alliance about the future of the NATO-Russia Founding Act. All allies are in full agreement that Russia is in violation of the NATO-Russia Founding Act. And all allies are also in agreement that we now are not really in a position where any of us feel compelled to look at what's in the NATO-Russia Founding Act to determine future force posture. So there were previously limits on what allies could do in new member states. And I think we've entered a phase or a moment in history where allies collectively believe that they have the freedom to make decisions about future force posture that's free of some of those commitments because of what Russia has done in Ukraine and how it is violating the NATO-Russia Founding Act. So I don't know exactly what language the allies are going to settle on in talking about the NATO-Russia Founding Act, but I can tell you that there is consensus building inside NATO about the limits or the lack of limits that the NATO-Russia Founding Act puts on us as we take those posture decisions. Now, on Jim's question about where we're going to land, I mean, as you know, allies have moved tens of thousands of troops into the eastern flank. Before Russia went into Ukraine, NATO had four multinational battle groups in the three Baltic states and Poland. In recent months, we've doubled that. We now have eight multinational battalions in Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, and Bulgaria. There is now an, an additional debate in the alliance about, first and foremost, 
what's happening to the troops that have already been sent to Eastern Europe? How long are they sticking around? What type of medium and longer term commitments can allies make regarding those forces that have already been deployed? And then there's the question of what is required on top of those commitments. I really can't get into the details of what the U.S. is debating right now, what's going to be put on the table. There's a defense ministerial happening tomorrow. Secretary Austin just arrived in Brussels. I saw him earlier this evening here at, at NATO HQ. Part of what's going to happen at the Defense Ministerial this week is we're going to dig into those questions. As you know better than anybody, Jim, there are open-ended questions about rotational presence versus permanent presence. All of that will be part of the debate. We'll be looking at the threats. We'll be looking at the geography. And all of this will lead us to some sort of decision in Madrid. So sorry, I can't say much more than that, but that's kind of the state of the debate right now inside the alliance. You also hit on the Finland and Sweden piece, and you kind of expressed optimism that, that you know, it's just a matter of time before they would be um, welcomed into the alliance. Um, can you talk at all about kind of how serious Erdogan's obstruction is? Um, and do you think it's going to have to come to, you know, a, an a engagement from President Biden to shake this loose or... I don't know if you can say anything more about what the timeline might be or what the process is to try to um, secure their continued progress into the alliance. Well, first of all, I would say that allies are in agreement that this is wonderful news. Uh, allies have welcomed the decision by Sweden and Finland with open arms. And even Turkey, as it has expressed some concerns about both of those countries, has simultaneously repeated its policy and views towards NATO's open door policy. It supports NATO's open door policy. This is not about NATO's open door policy or enlargement. Turkey has raised concerns, but the good news here is the alliance has 73 years of history of dealing with allied disagreements. We're used to hands going up in the back of the room and allies saying, hold up, we want to have a discussion. We disagree. We need to debate this. We are having plenty of discussions with our Turkish colleagues almost on a daily basis about this. We're talking about it not only here at NATO, but all of us are encouraging the three countries to get together. And as you've seen, they have met. Sweden, Finland, and Turkey have met separately in a trilateral format. We've seen individual leaders call up. We've seen U.S. principals in the Biden administration engage. You've heard readouts from engagements from Secretary Blinken or from National Security Advisor Jay Sullivan. So there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. We have multiple allies coming together to work this bilaterally or in multilateral settings. Again, I feel confident that we're going to be able to resolve this. I think it's within reach. Um, and I think, I well, I hope that we're going to see some sort of resolution in the not-so-distant future. Maybe I'll continue one more question, Jim, and then I'll let you jump in, too. Um, obviously, you know, as I said in the opening, the kind of unity and cohesion among NATO really has been remarkable, right, so far into the conflict. But in the media and in the kind of dialogue and discourse, there seems to be more and more emphasis on potential fissures forming within the alliance. And I would say probably one of the more notable ones is around what an acceptable end state in Ukraine looks like. 
And there was even this new uh, polling from the European Council on Foreign Relations that feels like it's gotten picked up and gotten a lot of press suggesting that over a third of Europeans favor ending the conflict as soon as possible, even if that means that Ukraine has to concede some territory. Um, but clearly there's many within the alliance, many Europeans who strongly, um, even vehement, vehemently oppose that idea. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how, whether, um, and if so, how that fissure is kind of manifesting in the NATO context. Well, again, I guess I would point to NATO's history and our ability to come to the table and offer different perspectives and yet still maintain unity. I mean, I will tell you behind the scenes, behind closed doors, both before Russia went into Ukraine and after Russia went into Ukraine, allies have had different perspectives. Uh, we have a collection of 30 different countries around the table that have different histories, they have different relationships with Russia. They have different perspectives on the best path forward. But I think that's why it's been so remarkable to see the level of unity that we've been able to maintain. And today, as you know, earlier today, the United States hosted the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. This is the third such meeting where the U.S. is playing a key role in coordinating the security assistance that's going into Ukraine. There were over 45 countries represented around that table. And over several hours, I did not get the feeling once that this group of countries, mostly NATO allies, but again, some other partners around the world are at risk of, of coming apart or that the, the disunity is going to start uh, presenting itself as, as a major challenge. Do we disagree? Yes, of course, we have moments where we disagree. We all ultimately, though, are in agreement that we want to support Ukraine, that President Zelensky has to make the ultimate decision about how this ends and when he's going to be comfortable to come to the table again and under what conditions. And we are all united in our determination to support Ukraine in this moment, not only with security assistance, but humanitarian and economic assistance as well. So yes, there are different perspectives and we hear those perspectives each and every day, but that's, that's what we do at NATO. And maintaining unity takes work. You you have to sit around the table every single day, sometimes for hours at a time, hear those perspectives, understand that we've got to continue to work at it, but then maintain it. And that's what we're doing. And, and I, frankly, I've been astounded. I've been impressed. And I've been proud to be a, a part of it and play a small role in bringing the allies together in this pivotal moment in transatlantic security. I know Jim has a Jim Townsend question to ask you right at the end, and we are going to get you out of here on time, um, given that it's so late your time. Really quick question on the uh, military aid. So a uh, new announcement today, another billion in assistance from the United States, which is really excellent news. Um, do you have any concerns about European allies' ability to sustain the military aid to Ukraine? I think one thing that I don't have a good grasp on is where allies' own reserves are and their ability to sustain the influx of weapons to Ukraine. Um, how do that? How are the allies talking about that? Um, thinking about the long term, if if this is a very long confrontation with Russia, as we all expect it, that it will be, 
um, what kind of plans and preparations are being made so that we can um, continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons that it needs and that it's asking for? Well, this is a constantly evolving process that has many different pieces to it. So first and foremost, we have to take the changing list of requirements that come in from Kyiv almost on a daily basis. So we've got the requests flowing in, we sit with the allies, look around the table and try to determine which allies can respond, who's ready to provide what. And it's challenging and difficult because again, the requirements are in flux. Initially, you heard us talking a lot about for example, air defense. We transitioned over time to talk more about ammunition, artillery shortages. Then we had a period where we were much more focused on coastal defense for all the obvious reasons. Um, we're looking now at armored vehicles. You've seen countries donating kilos and all sorts of heavy equipment. So it's an evolving process where, again, we first and foremost, we have to understand what the requirements are from a Ukrainian perspective. Then you have to sit and pair them with individual nations. Some nations have given absolutely everything they have. And yes, they've talked about slowly over time raising concerns about starting to get to, I guess what I would describe the back of the cupboard, uh, where they reach in and discover that they've given a tremendous amount of, of equipment in recent weeks and months. And they're reassessing what more they can give, again, looking at that list from Ukraine. But some are also saying, look, we can give financial assistance now, maybe another country, and this is where the coordination is so important, maybe another country has something to give, but they need the resources to either purchase that equipment or in some case back, cases backfill um, donations that are being provided. We've had allies say, we have something, but we don't have the transport available to get it to one of the hubs and then into Ukraine. So then an ally steps up and says, look, we can help you with that. That particular challenge. So it takes an enormous amount of coordination. Again, we're in contact not just with the Ukrainians, but really talking to each other, understanding how allies can help each other in this moment. But this is, this is an ongoing debate. Obviously, we're all thinking about how to best sustain this. But again, what I saw in the meeting today was the political will, which is most important to identify the capabilities that they need and then ensure that they're delivered. Okay, Jim. Uh, well, the, Julie, just uh, one of my standard uh, last questions, but for you, I, I'm very curious your answer, and that is, you know, you, you and I both have been working NATO for many, many, many years, and now you're there as the ambassador. Uh, you've walked through the door. You've had a number of months now under your belt. What has really surprised you? What has what has been some preconceived notions that, that are no longer are, are valid in terms of your mind? So what's, what surprised you? What what's, was really different than what you expected? Well, uh, as you know, you and I worked together uh, at the Pentagon on NATO issues, and so I had had the opportunity to take a peek at, at past ministerials and uh, summits and understand behind the scenes sometimes how things uh, get done at, at NATO HQ. But there's nothing like actually being here and sitting at the table behind the sign that says the United States, which has been a real point of pride for me personally. I've been amazed 
to see all of us come together in this moment. I've been amazed to see this very dynamic team at US NATO that brings folks from DOD, but also state together in this shared mission. Uh, it's been impressive to see how behind the scenes, small collection of allies, you know, will form. It's like, it's almost um, mini alliances inside an alliance will join forces at the right moment to push something across the finish line. So it's been amazing to see firsthand. I guess I thought, I, I guess the biggest surprise is I thought I knew and understood this alliance inside out, but the reality is I've had a lot to learn and I'm still learning each and every day uh, how things happen behind the scenes, but it's, it's been amazing to watch. Watch. And it does feel like this is history in the making because of this moment, a war in Europe with NATO responding in real time, coming to the aid of Ukraine, but also ensuring that its members feel that they have adequate uh, security, that, that they're reinforced with the right level of, of allied support. And um, I'm looking forward to the Madrid summit where we'll continue, I'm sure, to see some of that resolve and some of that unity. Thanks. This was wonderful. Thank you, Julie, um, Ambassador Smith, for joining us so late at night after an incredibly busy day for you. We really appreciate you taking the time. And it's always um, just what a fun thing to have you back on Brussels Sprout. So thank you it's, for doing it. It's great to see you guys. Thanks for the invitation. All we'll right, get you a mug. You'll, we'll get you a mug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's in the mail. <laughs> Thanks. All right, so now we're really excited to continue the conversation with Steve Erlanger and David Sanger. Are you guys there? Hello. Hey, how are you? Hey, hey Andrew. Welcome to you both. Hey, um, thanks so much for jumping in here midstream. Um, really looking forward to continuing the conversation. Um, lots of different threads there that we could pick up on from our discussion with Ambassador Smith, but maybe just to throw the floor open and say, did you hear anything that was particularly surprising to you? Um, what, and what, if anything, kind of perked your ears the most? And Steve, maybe I'll start with you. Well, it's even later for me than it was <laughs> for her. <laughs> um, she's done a very good job at saying what she wants to say and not saying much more than what she wants to say. So I didn't hear anything terribly shocking. I've heard a lot of what she said before. Um, she's very proud to have this job. She knows what she's doing. Other allies are very happy that she's there because the seat was empty for a year. Um, and so she's held in very high regard and it's a big American leadership moment. So I think, you know, together with President DOD, Austin, and um, General Milley are here today. Um, it's been a, a very powerful team. Um, and it's clear that on Ukraine, certainly, American administration is leading the way. And um, this has some Europeans unhappy, some Europeans worried that their efforts at autonomy will fall away, that it's just too comfortable to be back under the, under the American armpit. But um, Julie does this with a degree of decency that um, is very attractive to allies, even those who have doubts. 
Were either of you surprised by the optimism on the Sweden and Finland bids? I think that was about right. I think Sweden and Finland will both get in. There'll be some ugly moments along the way, and somebody's going to have to figure out how to buy off uh, the Turks, I suspect, on this. But particularly in the case of Finland, um, they clearly um, bring more weight to the alliance than others that uh, have been let in in recent years. So I think that's uh, that's that's one point. Uh, on Steve's point about um, uh, their appearance, first I had to laugh at what Steve was saying because he's absolutely right about those who were worrying that the United States would be too dominant. Excuse me. Two years ago, the concern was, were we leaving the region entirely and getting ready to unplug from NATO? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if if people have gone over to worrying that the United States is going to drown them out again, I would say that's probably a pretty good problem to have, you know, or as Bill Clinton used to say, a high class problem to have. Right. Um, second, I think one of the reasons that uh, Ambassador Smith has been pretty successful so far is everyone understands the nature of her relationship with Joe Biden. That's not always been the case with um, NATO ambassadors. Some have come with a close relationship with the president. Some have come with no relationship with the president. And in this particular case, having a close relationship is important because they know that if she needs to make a phone call to bring down the hammer, she can do it. Um, I think the third thing that's sort of interesting to note about NATO at this moment is heading into the, the summit in Madrid, we are, everybody acknowledges we're in a different phase in this war. We're in the ugly slogging inch by inch across a narrower, smaller part of, of territory. And by all indications, this is playing to the Russian strength right now. So it shouldn't be any surprise that there is some beginnings of differences in strategy. You saw it begin with Macron's call not to humiliate Putin, which read quite differently from Secretary Austin's call that we make sure that Russia couldn't is never in a position to be able to go do this again. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if Macron gets adherence to his, his view. Yeah, I know Jim has a question, but just really quickly to follow up on the alliance unity point, because it is an important one. Um, you know, Julie obviously recognized kind of, yeah, of course, we're going to have differences in opinion when you've got an alliance of 30 countries. Um, and so far, those manage those differences have been managed um, seemingly quite well. But it does to me seem like we are getting into a period where those divergences seem a little deeper or a little more salient or acute. And I don't know, Steve, as you're talking with different people there in Europe, um, is, is that your sense? I mean, how, how would you describe the evolution of unity in Europe? And, and do you think something's different or are we, you know, making something out of nothing here? Well, as you know, it's NATO isn't really doing the war, right? NATO countries are doing the war. NATO itself isn't doing much except coordinating. Actually, it's UCOM that's coordinating. And NATO is doing a lot to protect itself, right? To enhance deterrence on the Eastern flank, to pre-position equipment, to have four more battle groups, right? Um, but for Ukraine, 
these are country decisions. I mean, military aid is done by countries, not by NATO. The training is done by countries, not by NATO. And there are some countries, particularly the larger, richer countries in Europe, that are really being hit by high energy prices, hit by inflation, hit by these sanctions, which hurt Europeans much more than Americans, because they have much closer ties to Russia. And there's worry that this wars and the sanctions are going to go on and on and on. They've already cut 2 to 3% growth off the German economy. And you think, well, maybe that's okay. But, you know, Central Europe depends on the German economy, right? So, so this is a big issue. So you get people, I mean, Ivan Krustyev calls it the Peace Party and the Justice Party. And the Justice Party wants Putin on his knees and Russia defeated and driven back to Siberia, right? Because they say all our security is at risk from Russia now. And the Peace Party says we support Ukraine, but it's a very difficult war. We're not going to go war against Russia. NATO is not going to go war against Russia. At some point, you have to have some kind of resolution some kind of peaceful resolution, maybe not now, but we have to keep ties open to Russia, open to Putin. Russia's not going away. Life goes on, right? And these inevitably create strains. Now, that's not, you know, people are sending weapons to Ukraine. They're sending a lot of money. It's 10% of people's defense budgets going to Ukraine, right? So this is a big deal. It's just some people feel that the Justice Party and sometimes the American aims of weakening Russia for decades to come are just a bit much for the real commitment that the West is actually willing to make to this war. I think they may also, I agree with what Steve said, I think they may also be sensing that what we're headed to may not be a peace agreement at all, but something more like the Korean armistice. Okay, and let's just play that out for a moment. Let's say that we get to some kind of ceasefire or armistice agreement. And armistice is really just a, a more dressed up legalistic version of a, of, a, of a ceasefire. And at that moment, in return for an armistice, it's hard to imagine a significant lifting of sanctions because the sanctions would be the last remaining leverage you had in order to get that eventual peace accord. And I think that's what could be well be spooking many of the Europeans because they recognize if there is an armistice, not only will the territorial gains the Russians made be baked in for a period of time. I mean, in Korea, it's only gone on, what, 70 years now, right? Uh, and uh, the second thing that we're likely to happen to see is that the sanctions will get baked in too. No, I mean, this is Cyprus. This is lots of problems. This is the West Bank, right? I mean, things, sometimes frozen conflicts, maybe they're safer than unfrozen conflicts sometimes. But the problem for, for the Ukrainians is they say, this is not the time because we feel, the Ukrainians, that once more American and European sophisticated long-range artillery comes and and uh sophisticated rocket systems and anti-ship systems come, 
we can actually do a better job at pushing the Russians back. So we don't want a ceasefire until we have more of an advantage on the ground, because if we start peace talks now, what we're really talking about is territorial concessions, and that's politically impossible for Zelensky. Yeah, I think we, uh, Jim, I'll let you ask the next question, but it is going to be really, I think, a critical, this is a question, it's a comment. It's a, it's going to be, I think, a difficult test for also for alliance unity. So setting even what you, you, you that Ukraine is is unlikely to, to agree to any sort of negotiations that can see territory at this point. But what you do hear from Russian analysts um, is that if Russia is successful at taking all of the Donbass, that then they might then come to the table, offer the ceasefire and say, now we're ready to talk. And then what does that do to cohesion in the alliance with the Italians, the French and Germans? I think they'll find it increasingly difficult to justify to their publics the costs of war if Russia's offering an end to the fighting. So to me, that feels like a really important um, juncture uh, in the transatlantic community. But Jim, Jim, over to you for a question. Well, I, my question has been asked two or three times over. Let me let, let me just throw something out. But uh, I, I do think that we're in a period now where for Ukraine, uh, a lot will depend on the delivery of of the uh, of the uh, MLRS type rocket, you know, long range rocket, uh, art, you know, uh, artillery shells, that capability. Um, the HIMARS uh, systems, and uh, we're, I, I haven't seen what is in this latest uh, package, but uh, to date we're going to provide four. Uh, the Ukraine is asking for something like a thousand, uh, and lots of tanks and all these kinds of things. I, you know, I, we're at a crisis point now in terms of what we provide. Uh, if, if we're going to, if, 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 if our plan is to support Ukraine and, and we're going to uh, you know, ensure that the there is no territory transferred to Russia, to ensure that there isn't a frozen conflict that will favor Russia, then we're going to really have to up our game uh, to include this, this high Mars and this type of thing. If we feel that there's not enough high Mars to go around, which I think is the case, certainly not at the numbers that they're asking for, Ukraine, um, the Russians are going to really press hard and say, before, those, before the high Mars and these other things arrive, we are going to have to do better on the battlefield so that when we when we finally reach a point of, of being around the table, we will have taken everything uh, that we need in terms of territory, and it will be part of this frozen conflict, and we will have gotten what we wanted. So I think right now, as I look at the fatigue that I'm starting to see uh, among nations, and it's, and it's not a division, it's an actual fatigue of not having the, the Soviet-era shells, not having the inventory in terms of munitions, not having the MLRS or the HIMARS systems, uh, that's the big problem. And if this, and I think over the next month, if that type of thing doesn't start flowing in, uh, I just think things are not going to look good at all. So, there you go, Jim. I, I I would just say that today they announced that three more were coming, and so that the Germans, yeah, and the Germans were going to provide three similar systems, and the British have. But, and they're going to provide more of these big howitzers that are quite good. But, you know, it's a big problem. The Russians have the advantage. They do. Of, and um, as I say, what the Ukrainians really are hoping, I think the people I talk to hope the Ukrainians can get through the summer with roughly this kind of territorial situation. Because, they, you know, the Russians are still pretty far from taking Donetsk, I mean, even if they take 
Luhansk. Um, then things settle down and then it starts again after the winter when Ukraine is better prepared. But here we're speculating, as, as Laurie Friedman once said to me, war is empirical, right. which means it changes all the time and it's yeah. hard to predict what's going to happen. But you're right. I, I think these few weeks are really important to the outcome. Think about the difference in the order of magnitude between the number of uh, HIMARS that the Ukrainians are talking about getting and the number that we can provide them and that we produce each year, which is, right. in, I think, the double digits. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, the the Ukrainian wish is beyond anybody's, I think, production capability. And that would assume that we were willing to give them, you know, everything that we've got off in storage, which I don't sense is the case right now. I think the other place where we're beginning to see some of these fractures take place is um, on the question of the, the gas imports. I mean, I think the U.S. understands that Germany and Italy in particular are highly dependent, but they want to see increasingly a plan for weaning those countries off of uh, Russian gas. And so far, I haven't seen that plan. And certainly not a public one that's out there. The Germans have made some promises. Um, part of it is about LNG and the Americans, just some big factory just blew up, which provides 10% of all American LNG. So it is difficult in terms of supply. I mean, Nord Stream 1 has been going quite happily without anybody talking about it, right? <laughs> Although, um, are you seeing, Steve, the reports that the Russians are cutting the volume that's flowing through Nord Stream? So I think we could also- are a bit, point, yeah. You know, from the Kremlin's perspective, if mm -hmm. they believe they're, they've passed this note, this Rubicon, that we're never turning back, we're never mm -hmm. going back to the good old days before the war. Yes, there's an economic consideration. It hurts Russia too, but they might, I mean, it seems to me that the calculus could increasingly be if we can't go back, then we might as well inflict some pain on Europe while we're at it. It's true. So it's, it's just that at the moment, you know, given high energy prices, even with oil shrinking and coal off the table, I mean, the Europeans are paying, you know, roughly 900 billion euros uh, a month into Russia, right? That's nearly a billion Right. So yes. compared so to the amount of money report that came out, yeah. they've gotten 93 billion euros in revenue since the beginning of the war. It's yeah, almost yeah, yeah. a billion dollars yeah. a day. Yeah. And and Europe has provided two billion euros of compensation for countries to give weapons to Ukraine. So you see it is a problem. At the same time, the ECFR did a, a set of polls that came out today that show that European populations are increasingly sick of the war and sick of sick of the cost of it so political leaders have to worry about political backlash too that worries me quite a lot yeah do you get what's what, in the u.s i mean do you are you do you think that um americans are starting to kind of fill the i mean certainly the our oil prices are or gas prices are extremely high um to what extent do you think um there'll be greater pressure on the administration to curtail kind of the, the the support or put pressure on Ukraine to end the war in order to put an end to our high gas prices and inflation and everything else. Kind of what, what do you, 
how would you gauge kind of U.S. public appetite to sustain this confrontation? You know, so far, I haven't seen much of that connecting of the dots, but it's not going to take much of a leap. Um, I just um, filled my SUV over in Virginia at lunchtime uh, today, and as I got out of the car to fill it, I heard nothing but complaining all the way across. And they're not calling it Putin's gas hike. So... Um, so that's going to be an issue for uh, for Biden. Um, what we are seeing, and this is the one thing that news organizations can measure, is a waning of reader focus on this, right? So at the beginning of the war, we had millions of, uh, you know, readers coming to the Times website and, and all that. The numbers are now dramatically reduced. Um, the readers who have stuck with us are reading stories all the way to the end. Uh, that must be because of the way Steve's writing his. Um, <laughs> it's a very uh, rare I, event. I right. It, it, it certainly couldn't be anything I'm doing. And um, uh, so uh, you are seeing that. You've also had a lot of distractions. Uh, distractions. You've had horrific events. You've had the school shootings. Uh, you've had other mass shootings before that. Uh, you've had the inflation story, which, you know, grabs everybody. Um, so there is this sense right now that Biden's got a lot on his plate. And that's what's going to make his trip to Saudi Arabia so fraught. Because, you know, they haven't really, they have not done a very skillful job so far of explaining why um, putting human rights at the top of your hierarchy of interest meant uh, not uh, inviting three non-democracies to um, the Latin American summit last week, and at the same time announcing that you're going to visit the Saudis. Yeah. And I mean, one of the weird things David and I both work on that worries me a lot is the collapse of the Iran nuclear deal, which is basically moribund, but nobody wants to kill it. Um, and, you know, this could come around and bite us in a big way. I really worry about that. Well, speaking of things that could come around and bite us, I mean, I think one of the things that we're probably all watching too is the way that this war in Ukraine has ripple effects that reverberate far beyond Ukraine. And so thinking of um, wheat and you know food prices, Egypt and some of these other places, how concerned are you that you know, we're just, you know, it's just a matter of time before there's another crisis that the administration is going to have to respond to. Um, it, it, uh, where, where should we be looking? I don't know, as you're looking at this in the big picture, what are some of the dynamics that are, that are rippling out that you're most concerned about? Well, well I'm, I'm with Steve. I think Iran is the, I think Iran is the one that's coming at us fastest. That doesn't mean the food crisis one isn't is more and you'll be reading more about this in the times in coming days but um i think that's the one that president biden has barely talked about i'm sorry steve i interrupted you no 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 i mean i mean i, I was just gonna say for the european perspective the food crisis is one of the reasons the peace party wants some kind of arrangement right because Egypt depends, lots of North Africa depends on, you know, Indonesia. But the third rail in European politics is migration. And what they're really worried about is a whole new food crisis combined with a climate crisis that produces a whole new wave of, of um, strains from migration because of Ukraine. 
Now, we've been lucky, everybody's been lucky, because basically the Ukrainian refugees, and quite a lot of them have come. I mean, to be honest, they are very European-looking and sounding, most of them Catholic. They're women and children. They're not single men. They're being welcomed, and most of them want to go home, right? But, you know, Poland is, is, is suffering under the weight of this. Um, and there's just a lot of anxiety about a European economy that's never very lively anyway, really going into recession in a big way because of this war. You know, it's interesting to see also um, how Turkey plays in this uh, this this portion about the famine and the movement of of grains uh, through the Black Sea. Of course, Turkey controls the straits, uh, and Turkey is the one talking to Lavrov and others about some type of way to move the the um, grains out. Is there something that can be done? And I was wondering, have you all heard anything more about a possible humanitarian corridor? Uh, and, and how do you see Turkey's role in this? You see a very different role in NATO right now. We've talked about that. And then you have Turkey suddenly being in the center of a lot of different discussions with Russia, you know, playing on their relationship, the Turkish relationship, Erdogan's relationship with Putin. So what are you hearing in terms of, of Turkish abilities and, and any kind of humanitarian corridor that might be agreed? Well, I know the EU is talking to everybody about how to get grain out. I mean, the EU can't do it qua EU. Certainly NATO can't do it as, as, as um, NATO. But a coalition of the willing that included Turkish ships, Egyptian ships, uh, North African ships, um, the problem is as you know, the Ukrainians don't want to demine the waters around Odessa because unless they have really good security guarantees that Russia won't take advantage of that demining. So that's, you know, that's a much harder issue. And also, I, I don't know how high the insurance would be on these ships. So they're talking a, a lot. Biden even talked about getting more grain out by rail and so on. Yeah, but but it's the hard. discussion with Belarus is not going well on that topic. And yeah. uh, I, I, I get the sense from talking to people in the administration that they're all but giving up on the thought that they're going to come up with a way to, to make that work. Um, one of them said to me the other day, right after the Iran nuclear deal, <laughs> right after Ramadan. That's good. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, Turkey obviously Erdogan's in trouble. The economy is a mess. He has elections next year. He's playing on all kinds of nationalist buttons. You know, the Kurdish terrorism buttons. He's got. You know, we'll see what he gets from holding up. Sweden and Finland. I mean, he's kind of a stick-up artist who's very good at using the leverage of a consensus-based organization to get attention and to get what he wants. He did it in 2009 when Rasmussen was being blocked and on the pretext of Danish cartoons about Muhammad. Right. And it took, and it took Obama giving him a bunch of things that he wanted to sort of get Rasmussen through. Now, I don't know, they keep denying it's about F-16s down the road. They keep denying lots of things. But at the moment, Finland and Sweden are being held hostage. And I don't think this will happen by, 
by Madrid. Um, it just won't. But yeah. um, people are still pretty confident, as Ambassador Smith was, that it will happen. But I do think the big game is in Washington. I think there are things that Erdogan wants out of the U.S., whether it's F-16s, uh, F-35, whatever it is, there's there's some big goals that they want from the U.S. I think they're, I think Sweden and Finland, not sure that's important to Erdogan, but I think really the big game is behind is behind that screen, that Nordic Baltic sc uh, Nordic um, screen there. I think it's really in Washington, and I think they're trying to get some additional things out of us. The things have been held up on the hill. We're almost, I mean, I think we are at time, but maybe just a quick last question for both of you, just looking forward. Steve, is the EU going to offer membership to Ukraine? Um, and David, as you talk to the administration, I don't know if I, anything you can tell us about um, the mood of the administration on the Ukraine issue and kind of your sense of where they see, see things going over the next month or so. Steve, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I think there's a lot of political pressure to at least open some sort of path for Ukraine. There's a lot of resistance too, but I think the commission, which is the bureaucracy on Friday will say, oh, it's great and dump this hot potato into the lap of the council, which are the member states. And I think there'll be some kind of, con some kind of con conditional go ahead because it'd be too politically embarrassing not to have it. I mean, we believe Macron, Schultz, and Draghi will be in Kiev tomorrow. And obviously, I think part of the game here is to show their support for um, at least some kind of European perspective for Ukraine. But Sorry, but the rumor is that they'll use EU membership as the leverage to, to try to get him to the negotiating table. Is there any credence to that? I don't know because EU membership is decades away, so it's 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 not very useful for leverage. And also, I think they recognize. Even Macron said today, it has to end in negotiations, but it's probably not the time for that. And it's up to Zelensky, which is kind of the American line. So he's walked back a little bit. So, Andrea, to answer your question, the mood in this White House right now is pretty grim not for reasons that have very much to do with Ukraine. In fact, the handling of Ukraine was probably one of the great bright spots of the administration in its first 18 months. Um, and especially compared to how the same team handled Afghanistan, you know, it looks uh, spectacularly good by comparison. And the mood is bad because of inflation, of polling that suggests they're going to lose uh, control of Congress. The only question is how badly, uh, because you've seen a lot of people leave the White House, surprisingly, a surprising amount of turnover uh, before these midterm uh, elections. And a sense that important as Ukraine is, that's not going to be the number one issue that Joe Biden's going to have to focus on if he's hoping to get reelected. Now, we don't know if he's hoping to get reelected. He will be uh, pushing 82 uh, come, the, uh, come the election. And uh, it's entirely possible, I imagine, that he will not um, seek to. One thing we do know is that after he loses control of Congress in November, he will be an all-foreign policy president because what little was left on his domestic agenda there, including infrastructure and so forth, 
isn't going to happen in the absence of Democrats leading uh, the Biden uh, charge there. If they lose Congress, will it mean anything for the Ukraine policy? Or do you think that there's enough kind of bipartisan support for that? I think there's enough. There is a strain of isolationism that you see in this um, uh, in this uh, party right now. Um, so far, it's been relatively limited. But if you got a Trump-like figure back in the presidency in uh, 2024, I could definitely see uh, a lack yeah. of enthusiasm for it. Yeah. Well, we could have continued for at least another 30 minutes, that's for sure. Um, but I really appreciate you both joining this, joining us for this special live edition of our podcast. Um, and I just also want to take an opportunity to thank the audience for tuning in. Um, and if you missed any part of our conversation, it'll be um, available in our normal um, distribution of the podcast. So Steve and David, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, we'll be in touch again soon. Yep, thank, thank you so much. Mugs for everyone. Yeah, mugs. All right. And we'll fill in with thank yummy. Thank you both. Yeah. Okay. okay. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.